Hey, I'm sports journalist Sam Squires. Welcome to On Her Game in partnership with Puma for the Fearless podcast series. On Her Game is a space where I get to share the stories of our incredible female athletes to try to learn more about the person behind the athlete. I'm excited to partner with Puma to uncover how their female sporting icons have reached the top of their fields, the challenges they've faced along the way, the boundaries they've had to push through, the glass ceilings they've had to smash, as well as the hopes, dreams and fearless attitudes that have shaped the women they are today. Together, we'll make sure women are seen, heard and treated as equals, both in sport and in life. In this episode, I speak with the president of Richmond Football Club, Peggy O'Neill. Peggy is a powerful figure in Australian sport, the first female to head up an AFL club, a position she's held since 2013. That achievement alone has earned her the title of a pioneer, a trailblazer. But Peggy has been blazing trails her whole life. One of the first women admitted into the prestigious University of Virginia Law School, the only woman in her first law firm, the first female president to win an AFL premiership. The constantly shattering glass ceilings comes with risks, pressures and fears that those shards from the smash could cut others along the way. She felt the pressure to succeed not only for herself but for all women. The succeed she has, Peggy is a fearless leader and an inspirational woman whom players, fans, administrators and her peers alike hold deep admiration and respect. She continues to change the sporting landscape and pave an incredible path for future female leaders in sport. But Peggy's story begins 16,000 kilometres away from Australia in a town that no longer exists. Kalani, West Virginia. Now, Kalani is a coal mining town, is that correct? And it doesn't even exist anymore. That's right. It's, um, it was one of those towns that was built up by the mine uh, owners for the miners to live in. And of course, was as coal ceased to be um, produced as, in such great quantities and as uh, oil became the sort of preferred method of, of heating and, and fuel, then it sort of fell by the wayside like a lot of those small towns uh, in, in those areas. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. My father and my uncle went back to try to find it uh, before they died and there was no place. It was just wasn't there. There was just the train tracks. Were you a sporty child? Well, I played sport, but there were no sporting fields. There was nothing. <laughs> there was nothing organized about that. Um, I loved playing um, gridiron and you know, pick up basketball, and but that was sort of when I was a, you know, by the time I was in primary school, not when I was really small. And and when I was in primary school, we had moved to a town of about you know a thousand people, so it was getting much bigger. Um, so uh, no, I d- I didn't play sport. There was I, I played you know, in the middle of the street with other kids. I, uh, my father loved sport, and so I played um, a bit of softball with him and was in the sort of little team that would get put together to play in the summer and the afternoons and things like that, but nothing organized. Gridiron, I heard you say. Yes. Um, <laughs> that is very cool. What made you take that up? And I'm thinking at the time there were very few girls that would have played gridiron. I always liked sport, even if I didn't play it. I was a great spectator. And um, in small-town America, sort of like small-town Australia, I guess, sport is a big social outlet. And um, gridiron, because it was the dominant sport in that area in the South in America, that's sort of the predominant sport. And my um, local school, that was what uh, we mostly did, that and basketball and and um, baseball in, in the spring. So um, it turned out I was pretty good quarterback and uh, <laughs> and I liked I like throwing the ball and I was pretty good at it and I awesome. and, and I learned from playing in the streets with the boys in the neighborhood that I could throw it as far as they could yeah. back then before we all grew up and and uh, they got bigger and stronger than I did so uh, no I just enjoyed it but probably my favorite sport to watch was basketball mm. uh, you know smaller court um, indoors, it was um, it was a great thing to do in the winter time. So so I like just about everything, um, but gridiron is the one that I played. And then when I went to uni, I played in the intramural team for a couple of years until school and academics took over. When you were applying to law schools, also many didn't take women at that time. Um, you ended up in a very prestigious law school of the University of Virginia, and they only started 
taking women because of a legal suit, forcing them to do that. And you were in that first influx of women into that law school. What was that environment like for a young female to walk into and a young Peggy O'Neill to walk into at the time? Oh, it was quite daunting. (laughs) There were so many brilliant people. Um, uh, But the American system was you, you had to have a bachelor's degree from, and then you applied to law school as a separate school, so it was a three-year degree beyond that. So you actually get a doctor of jurisprudence. It's a seven-year degree. Um, so there were lots of people who had come from all of the Ivy League schools, the Harvards and Yales, and um, and they went to the University of Virginia. So I, I walked in with um, great grades and a lot of confidence from where I'd come from. But then you <laughs> remember my first day, I thought, oh, my goodness, look, look at these people, look how smart they are. And in class, I had no idea what <laughs> people were. And I, but I kept telling myself, there's only one right answer. It might take you a while to get there, but you just keep showing up. And, and your parents have sacrificed a lot, and you want this. You, you want to do this. And um, so while it took me a while to find my feet, um, and in the end, I was thinking, oh, I'll, law school's okay. But it was practicing law subsequently that really interested me because it went from theoretical to actually, you know, assisting people and clients with uh, with, with problems. But no, it was very daunting to, to walk into a world that um, I had only seen in movies. And then there you were. You talk about you finding your feet when you're actually in a legal firm. And again, you're the first female in that legal firm that you first turned to. What was that <laughs> then Then like? Was it as, as intimidating um, and also in that environment, what were your colleagues like, your male colleague? Did they accept you being in that or were you always an outsider? Well, it, sometimes it's better that you don't know what you're walking into <laughs> or you might never have done it. Um, I was, you know, armed with my law degree from a prestigious school and went through the round of interviews with different law firms. And I guess I didn't understand what would happen in being the first in a commercial situation in academia, you know, you go to class, you go home. But when you get into a law firm, you spend so much time together and people get to know each other so well that I went in not expecting the sort of reception that I got. And over time, it, it changed dramatically and I felt quite a part of the place. But um, I remember one of the first um, junior lawyer lunches that they had on a regular sort of basis, and and um, and I was asked to to get the sandwiches and to put them out on the on the plates, and <laughs> and uh, and I remember I said, well, I don't think that's my job, uh, and everybody laughed, but I think they were trying to make that my job. There were firm parties, and uh, and you'd be the only woman there, and and uh, you'd think, oh, I don't know if I want to drink and play poker, (laughs) but you sort of felt like you needed to, and I'll think about it, you need to fit in even if you didn't feel like you belonged necessarily, and it's the fitting in when you're the only one, and uh, and I was so young, I was 24, that you don't quite have the life experience to say, um, you know, respect me a bit more, and or I'm just going to go my own way and this is a job, this isn't my way of life. So, um, but in the end, uh, I made some great friends there that I'm still in touch with uh, from that first law firm. And I went back a few years, oh, probably a decade ago for a, a reunion of some of us who had worked there. And and a couple of partners said to me, we were really hard on you, weren't we? <laughs> and they gave me a gift. And I thought, well, even if it's all this time later, to, for somebody to acknowledge that um, that, that was not a, an easy thing for a 24-year-old to walk into. Uh, and I remember some cases that involved um, uh, going to um, other towns and cities and staying overnight. And they told me I couldn't go because I couldn't travel with the men. Mm, really? Uh, so it was... Uh, it was it was just a time that you have to go through in order for more women to get those jobs and and for a lot of those uh, barriers to, to to fall away. You moved to Australia. You met an Australian while traveling and then you came mm-hmm. over here. Um, you ended up in Richmond, in Melbourne. Yes. <laughs> and an American fell in love with Aussie rules. What was it about this game that you loved so much and wanted to take your involvement in Richmond deeper? 
Well, I had always loved sport, as you've heard. Um, and uh, when I moved to Richmond, it was clear that everybody had to have a team in Melbourne, <laughs> um, that uh, everybody talked about their team and and who was playing and and the players. And, and so I thought, well, I'll learn a bit about this because I like sport. And I'm within, I can see the MCG from where I live. So um, I thought, well, I can attend. And then it was inexpensive to attend compared to American sports. American really? professional sports uh, are really out of reach of most people and they're only in big cities. Um, so when I found there were all these teams and they're playing here and it was just the sort of beginning of the national expansion. So I um, went to my first game and it was just this beautiful April afternoon and and just seeing how big the ground was <laughs> and the athleticism and uh, and the fact that it was such a big part of Melbourne life. Um, so I joined a footy tipping competition to educate myself a bit. <laughs> awesome. And... Um, then I, you know, gradually went up through the uh, different tiers of memberships because I found out the more you pay, the better your seats are. <laughs> um, so I think it was just my love of sport and my love of the position that these football clubs have in communities around Australia and that I was close enough uh, to really take advantage of that. And as an outsider, uh, again, it, it sort of gives you somewhere to belong, that everybody's welcome if you're a member uh, I think that lots of clubs could really take heed of that, that for people who are outside and looking for a place to belong, all new people coming to Australia, it really is an important factor in being able to take you know, part in that conversation that most workplaces um, have around Australia for most of the year. So, um, so it made me feel a bit more comfortable, and, and I just love the sport. So I just, <laughs> it just became a priority for me to get there. <laughs> You um you then went from being um a member, a paying member, to a Richmond player sponsor, and that's how your association with the club went deeper. And continuing this trailblazer theme, in 2013, um, you, after eight years of being on the board, you were elected president. Now you're the first president of an AFL club. Did you understand there, the first female president of an AFL club, I should say, did you then understand the enormity of that position? Did you expect it to be headline news? Uh, no, I was a, a bit naive, I think, in that. I thought it would be a story for a little while, you know, and, and then in a week or so it would have run its course and, and, um, and something else would be the headline. But I'd been on the board for eight years before I became president, and and so I I knew that I could chair the board at Richmond. I knew the management and the people there. Um, the board elects the president, so the board had thought I was the best person, and and so I thought, well, this is just a you know backroom job of being chair of a board and president of a club, and and there's not going to be much difference in being on the board and chairing it. <laughs> But uh, it did become quite big news and uh, lasted for much longer than I would have thought. And But again, in reflection, I realized that I really came out of left field. I didn't, no one knew me um, in the football world. And the more I'm in the football world, I realized that most people know each other quite well. Most of the, most of the men have played football together or their brothers have married the sisters of other people and their whole families have, have been in, and that's been their contribution to Australian society for a very, very long time. And, you know, not only was I a um, woman, but I was an American. And so, and I didn't go to school with anybody here. I didn't have any brothers who played. It was <laughs> just, um, so I think a lot of it was a curiosity about where did, where did you come from? What has Richmond done now? And some people had said to me, well, they're, they're never going to go anywhere now. They got a woman in there and a yank at the same time. So uh, I thought, well, um, the board is, has given me their confidence. And if I'm no good at this, the worst that happens is I go back to watching football and sitting in the stands and having a good time. So um, I, I was surprised at how long it went for and at some of the comments people made who didn't know me. What then was the pressure like, 
not only to perform for yourself, but did you feel that pressure because of your gender? You felt far out, I need to do this, not just for me, but for other women who want to follow in my footsteps now. Well, I I was thinking and I'd been interviewed and I said, well, you know, I may be the first, but I'm certainly not going to be the last. But I think when, you know, you're the only woman is people extrapolate that to all women act this way because, again, people have a narrow view about um, uh, what a football club president should look like, their manner, uh, are they, you know, aggressive, or a lot of people have been, you know, former players. Um, so this was a different model, and it did occur to me that for other women to get a chance, it was important that I do the job well. Now, that doesn't mean that I can guarantee any football success. That isn't my job. But in helping the club make good decisions and working with management and our CEO on getting the board strategy implemented, all of those kind of corporate things. But I also came to realize that an important part of the job is the ambassadorial role that's there. And I love going to small towns. It may be my upbringing, but supporter groups and meeting people and talking to them, I enjoy that as much as anything. So that has has been a great highlight of my time there. But um, but back to your initial question, I, I did become aware that a lot of people would judge whether other women, unfairly whether other women, would get a shot depending on how well I did and how well I stood up to scrutiny and and people have said to me in the past well she must be tougher than she looks and uh, and I think you can't really decide what toughness means it, it's a lot of it is just persistence and just I always say you just keep showing up and um, and I had great support around the club even if there wasn't a lot of support in the in the media or the AFL community but um, but anyway we we got there because I've, I've heard you say Sometimes when you're the only woman in the room, you feel like all the women in the world. Is mm. that an honour or is it a hindrance, a burden? Well, I, th- I think it's an honour to be the woman in the room, um, but it's just the start of something. And I hope that we get to the point of realising the great diversity of women and their backgrounds and their opinions and that not everyone is the same. And um, and it sounds pretty simple, but there's still this um, sort of tendency to lump people together, and whether it's women or whether it's an ethnic group or, well, that's what they're like. There's been a lot of you know research and, and um, business studies on once you get people from different backgrounds in the room, the decisions get better and the performance of the organization gets better. And sometimes that means that people who are already in that room uh, may not have the seat of power that they once had. And it's a lot to ask people to concede that sometimes. And it doesn't mean that that they leave if you're doing a good job, but it just means that you've got to look more broadly and think that people around board tables ought to reflect the community that you're trying to serve because you need to understand what that community wants. And so if you want as we do at Richmond, a huge membership base, then you ought to have people around the board table, people who work at the club especially, who reflect that great diversity of the population of your of your members. So I, I did feel that I needed to do a good job, uh, but my definition of a good job may have been a bit different <laughs> than other people's definition of a good job. But um, the good decision-making over time uh, of the board and of management um, has led to a period of success. You've had great success. Um, You talk about not having that media support and and trying to get the fans on board. You were one of the most respected and beloved presidents in AFL at the moment. So how did you get them on board? Well, I, I didn't worry too much about the opinion and measuring it all the time. You can't. Um, But I thought, and this is the lesson learned in those early days of being at law law school and law firms is you just 
got to know yourself a bit. You've got to say, this is the way I do things, and I can't be something else. And if I do that, I will certainly fail. And if I can't figure it out by being myself, and people don't respond to it being me, then it means that somebody else ought to do it, and I'm with the wrong organization. Um, but I think a lot of of getting people behind the club was being seen as a progressive organization, as being seen ready to do things differently. And whether that was me or um, starting our Corn Gamagee Institute, which is um, a leadership institute for young indigenous people who come from all over the country to do programs there on leadership and health and cultural sensitivity, and now the Bashar Hooli Foundation and Muslim Academy uh, for uh, boys and girls. So I think it just led to a great opening up of what's possible in um, in a football club. And and while I may have been the visible part, the start of that had happened while I was on the board. And it wasn't just me. It was our uh, determination that we would get more women involved that we really had an obligation to help you know, close the gap with the indigenous community. So I, I think that fans came along because they became proud of what we were doing. And, and I've often thought that while you're waiting to succeed, you got to be standing for something. You got to be doing something that make your fans proud. And I think in this wonderful way, that was happening just because we were making decisions to, uh, to broaden uh, our membership base and to welcome everybody. We wanted everybody who had an interest in football to be a member of the Richmond Football Club. <laughs> and um, so I, I I think that that made a difference and people got behind the club and and whether it was me or or not, I'd like to think I was a pretty good ambassador. We often think that when one breaks through for females, like when one female gets a certain position or shatters that glass ceiling, then it's going to open up the floodgates and that's going to enable so many other women to be able to follow in their footsteps. But I've seen a lot of the time when there's been a groundbreaking um, opportunity come up for, for a female, she's broken through to be the first, like you have so much in, in your career, that a lot of the time it's a really long gap before we see the second female. Why do you think that is? Well, if we're talking about uh, women who are presidents of football clubs. Um, we tripled our number in the last four months, so that was good. <laughs> the last four we months. With the Western Bulldogs and, and Melbourne. Um, the top of the ladder of those two clubs, it just says you need to get a woman as a president and things happen. Um, but also have to be mindful that football club boards are relatively small, you know, seven or nine members, um, that the turnover isn't that great. But I think sometimes if you haven't, thought about changing the way you do things, it takes a while for people to to sort of judge how things are going for the clubs that are doing something and whether you should get on board. There's a lot of followers and it's more difficult to be the one that breaks through first. And it takes, I think, a bit of confidence and a bit of, we believe this is what we need to do to progress as an organization. So I think there might have, there's usually lag time as people try to sort out whether that's a trend that they need to follow or if it's um, something that should just become part of, of who they are and, and how they do things. So, so I, I wish things moved more quickly. And, and women on AFL club boards, we get together a couple of times a year for dinner. We haven't been together with COVID last year, but, um, but I've, my mantra was always, can somebody else please become president? Can you just put up your hand and and try it? Uh, but of course, you have to have support of your board and and all of that to make it happen. And believe it or not, a lot of people don't want these jobs. Um, they're pretty demanding and and they're labor of love. And you have to have a pretty flexible schedule to to fit it all in. But um, but yeah, the more the merrier. And I'm so happy to see the the breakthroughs coming now. In your time, then, how do you reflect on the pace of change for female leaders in sport? Has it been at that pace that you would you would want that you expected? No, there's there's so much to be done. Mm-hmm. I I think that women on the boards have come along pretty quickly. 
But what we really need in men's sport is to have women who are are senior executives, who are CEOs, who are all through management, uh, and who are coaching, no matter what the sport is. And I think that there are you know, two parts to, to women's sport. One is participation and wanting women to participate and have the facilities and the support they need to be great elite athletes. And the second is the, the leadership part, which is women in the administration of the sport. And we haven't seen that come along as quickly as I would have thought. And again, if someone is, you know, is progressive enough to break down the barrier first, then I think we'll see see others come along. But um, but right now, for example, in AFLW, we're seeing a number of men get jobs on the AFLW side, but we aren't seeing the equivalent number of women getting jobs on the men's side. And I think we really won't have accomplished what we need to accomplish until there's a great crossover of the two. And hopefully with a number of the education opportunities and pathways that are being developed that we'll see men and women interchangeably working across both sides of um, of that of the league. I'm constantly hearing that we've got to we've got to train up more female leaders in sport and we have to give them you know that training and um, courses and make them available. Um, but there's another argument that I'm hearing as well that the leaders are there, the women are there, but they're just not being given the opportunities. Mm. Where do you stand on that? Well, I think it's both. You need to, I think the women are there. And I think that if you want women to to be fully-fledged participants at, at either in um, as players or as leaders, it's a bit of go, go find them. Go find the people that you know are qualified and ready to go. But you need to be developing the next cohort of women to come through as well. And some women do hang back thinking, I don't have a, a formal qualification of some kind. So those opportunities need to be there. But undoubtedly, if you, as an organization, decide that we want more women in uh, executive positions, we want more women as coaches, we want more women on the board, they're there. You just You just need to go find them and to give somebody a chance. But you're right, the opportunities have been lacking in many cases. I know for for Richmond, we decided some years ago that we needed to get more women into the board. So we have a number of committees and we said, we can't wait for people to get on the board in order to get on a committee. We'll go find women and put them on as the external members of these various committees. We get to have a chance to see if they're interested and they get to see what the job is about. And we have five women on our board right now, and all of them have come through the committee system. We're now going through a similar approach with um, Indigenous and multicultural representatives, and it's like we can't wait for a board position because, as I mentioned, they don't turn over all that often. But we can start getting people through and getting their ideas through the committee system. But we're going to go and find them uh, because it takes something for people to put up their hands when they haven't seen anyone like them. Uh, around the club. From what you're saying, saying the women are there, does sport need quotas, do you think? Mm. I chaired a uh, a panel for the Victorian government back in 2014-15, and it was an inquiry into women and girls in sport and active recreation. And we did a number of focus groups around the state. We went to regional Victoria and most of us were Melburnians. There were, I think, nine of us on the panel. And it was amazing in going to these um, various different sites how much people wanted quotas. They said nothing's going to change because people are so reluctant to hand over, and especially in small communities where there's some source of power in being the one who runs the football netball club and it's been handed down for generation to generation, that without quotas... It will continue as it is. And uh, they were past targets, and frankly, I'm past targets too. Uh, there was one woman who said, targets are just there to be missed. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, and so one of the things, one of the recommendations that came out of that inquiry, which was followed by the state government, 
was that state sporting organizations who wanted funding because there's very little leverage you have to make things happen. But if you wanted funding, you had three years to prove that you were on your way to 40% women on your board and thought, well, the board one is almost easier than the others, so we'll start with that, along with a lot of resources to help women uh, in regional areas who may not be uh, as inclined to put up their hand, but have been running the club behind the scenes for years. And, of course, there was the outcry of, that's impossible, it won't happen. And then I started seeing little by little advertisements for Women who want to be on boards were having a weekend, you know, <laughs> session on how you do it, and somebody's going to come and talk to you. And it was done. It was done uh, because money talked. <laughs> yeah. And um, so I, I think that quotas, uh, when people say, well, we want people uh, who are here on merit, well, if it was on merit, there would be 50-50 women there already. Mm. Uh, merit doesn't just reside with uh, one one gender. So I am quite a believer in quotas, and and we at Richmond some time ago had decided that we would um, look at 40% women on boards, on committees, and overall to, to try to, to meet that. And uh, sometimes we did, and sometimes we fell short, but you realize that unless you're deliberate about it, that it just doesn't happen at the pace that it's needed to happen. When talking about women supporting women, you're involved with the Minerva Network and their mentoring program. Can you talk a little bit to that and and how that has helped you in your goal to help more women? Yes, well, the Minerva Network is um, about three years old. It started in um, New South Wales, and I'm co-chair of the Victorian chapter. But the the idea is to um, match professional women athletes with businesswomen so as to develop a mentoring relationship, but also to help them expand their network for life after sport. And um, it was identified that often it's more naturally comes to men athletes that they develop these networks while they're playing. But women, it's much harder because, as we were saying, the, you know, the, the visibility and the prominence of, of women just isn't quite the same. So this is a again, a deliberate action to identify women athletes who would like to be part of this and then to match them with leading businesswomen. So Kate Palmer and I co-chair the Victorian one, and uh, it's just been a delight these last few months because we only started in Victoria in September of 2020 uh, before the pandemic was over, so we've had a lot of virtual um, webinars and things like that. We also have some personal development webinars that go on at the national level as well as at state level. And uh, it's it's just an effort to to support um, professional women athletes. And um, they're a remarkable group group of women. Because they're leaders on the field and on the court now, but they are the future as well of being, you know, the leaders like we talk about needing in administration and on boards in governance as well. That's right, and um, and it's across all, all sport. It's not um, it's not football specific at all. So uh, anyway, it's it's wonderful to be, be to be part of that, and we're continuing to identify uh, women athletes who want to be involved through our networks. And and um, Kate Palmer used to be the CEO of the Australian Sports Commission, so she's across all the Olympic sports and and knows um, lots of um, women athletes and and. Um, I tend to know a bit more of the business side of things. And anyway, so th- between the two of us, we've um, been fortunate to to make a few of those matches. But nationally, it's been going on for a while, and it's uh, pretty fantastic. As someone who's been the first so many times in childhood and university and in her career, and we're talking about it now, seeing that a lot of these positions are held by men, it is so important to bring men along on the ride as well. How do you do that? There was another study. It sounds like we did a lot of academic studies or or, or reviews, but um, one of the things when at Richmond when I was on the board was right before I became president is our management team had identified that we had not as, we were in the bottom quartile for women members. So it started out as a business sort of proposition of why aren't women attracted to Richmond as um, as a club. And it could be that it, they get family memberships. It could be that, uh, you know, if women are usually, if, if there's not enough money to go around, you 
let the the, the children and uh, the male members of the household go. But we thought we'll dig into that a little bit more. And um, and along the way, we worked with the Australian Sports Commission then and AFL to fund a study on perceived and actual barriers to women being involved in sports leadership. And we took upon ourselves as part of the study to have a three-year trial at implementing the recommendations. And one of the recommendations was to be a public advocate for women in sport. And we, with the help of Liz Broderick, started the Male Champions of Change of Sport. And I know that Liz was quite excited that sport speaks to so many people. There was already the the male champions of change in business, but somehow if you have a sporting hero stand up and talk about how good this is, it tracks attention through a whole uh, a whole of society as opposed to just the business community. So, um, so our CEO Brendan Gale put together a, a group of men at the time, which says something that. All the CEOs of major sporting organizations, uh, including um, you know Olympic sports, were men. That's changed over time, uh, and and now there are few women, but that's sort of going backwards as well right now. But it was the idea that men had to be committed to making the change, and there had to be a sharing of information about those who did it well and those who, who wanted to learn. I know that with the um, the state review that I did and those recommendations that the Women's um, Office of Sport and Recreation for Victoria was set up and there were uh, Change Our Game champions that came from that about getting men involved because it just increases so much quickly or, or you reach your goals more quickly if the people who already have the power share the power as opposed to women convincing each other that we need to do something. So you need to go to those who can make things happen. And I agree with you that men need to come along. And men in sport who who talk often and publicly about the value of having women in organizations as players and as leaders can really make a difference to uh, making that happen much more quickly. Richmond launched their women's side in 2020. How important with that development in the club's culture, in um, in the club's own development? Well, as soon as we heard that there was going to be an AFLW competition in 2017, is we applied for a license that year. Uh, we had done all this work on, you know, bringing more women in to the organization. We had, we were part of this three-year study on on some of the benchmarks that we had, had set for ourselves, and we didn't get a license. But we saw that as just a wonderful opportunity. We didn't, no one at that stage knew exactly what it was going to look like, but we just thought that this will make us a better place. So we were terribly disappointed that we didn't get a license then, but we were determined that when the next opportunity came along, we would apply again. It also meant that when we were turned down, we went to the VFL and started a women's team in the VFL competition. And that sort of gave us some time to operationalize what adding a team into a building that's very crowded <laughs> as to understanding the coaching requirements. So we had um, almost, we, we wanted to win, <laughs> but we also had a time to experiment a bit about how we would handle a women's team. We applied again and we're told we would get a license in another couple of years, but we wouldn't be given one at that time. So in 2020, by the time we finally had a license and we had a team to take to, take to the ground, we were so excited. And, um, and all of the, the benefits that we hoped would come to the club have come to the club. It's just wonderful to see so many women who come and go who have different different roles from recruiting to playing to uh, head of operations just around the place. And uh, it's also very um, encouraging and as if I should be surprised that, you know, the men who play just see them as elite athletes. You know, we're all elite athletes here. And with COVID, they can't cross over in the way that we would have hoped. 
And but before COVID happened, we had a you know, joint training where the fans could come, and and some of the men players uh, you know, were with the women, and coaches crossed over, and and that that integration, um, and it's just been delayed because of um, the restrictions on you know players in one team uh, congregating with players in another. But it's just. Um, been fabulous. It's different. And when I hear people criticize it, it doesn't look like the men's game. It's not the men's game. It's a different game. And uh, women are coming along very quickly with a bit of elite coaching and good facilities to uh, having a product that's just wonderful to watch. Where do you want to see the AFLW go and how can it get there? I would like every uh, AFL club to have a women's team. Uh, I understand, you know, the logistics of finding enough grounds to, and especially in the COVID period right now, um, moving people around the country uh, is sometimes um, the best laid plans just never come to fruition. But there's often, you know, talk about there's no depth of talent. And that, I think the fastest way to get that developed is to have more opportunities for women to play. And the AFL announced that they are committed to all 18 clubs having a women's team, but probably over the next three to four years. So I see the slowly, slowly, but we're getting there. And we have to remember that the competition's five years old and uh, we have 14 teams. So I really like to see every club have a team. And then I would like to see the women have a longer season so that they have a time to find their feet in the competition. If you lose a couple of games now, you're just sort of out of finals pretty early, that there's be an opportunity to to lose some games, to come back, to have a full final series. And at some point, it's going to overlap with the men's game. The What's been announced now is it'll start in December and it'll be finished. But I, I think the AFL has given it time to find its audience and find its feet before people start to have to choose between one or the other. And the women's game has, you know, its own fan base. It's people who have do nothing but watch women's. I try to watch both. But I think also we have to be aware of the state competitions for women that rely on some of the AFLW women playing, that as soon as, that, as the AFLW season's extended, for example, the VFLW will not have the number of players that it has now, but maybe that's the breed, you know, the the um, training ground for bringing people along to um, to go to the senior competition. I'm not sure, but but I think a longer season, every club to have a team, and that women need to get paid in a way that they don't have to work part time while they're playing. And I don't know how that's going to happen. It's a matter of negotiation with the AFL Players Association and finding where the money is. And right now, there isn't a lot of extra money to go around to to pay players. But uh, but the women I talk to want to be paid enough to be a full-time professional athlete. And full-time may not mean 12 months of the year, but it may mean that they don't have to look for a second a, a second job or to say if something happens and I have to choose between the job I have now and uh, and especially for a lot of them are teachers, that if something happens like with COVID and the game changes, well, suddenly I either have to miss my job and take days off or or miss playing. So uh, so it's, it's complicated. It's a, it's a huge um, quandary for those who have to schedule these sorts of things. But if you're asking for a wish list <laughs> without any responsibility for making it happen, that would be my wish list. Because the girls do it tough, don't they? In terms they of they're, they're essentially part-time athletes, but their expectation from fans is that they, they perform like full-time athletes, 12 months of the year, high-performance programs. But these mm-hmm. girls are a short time at the start of the year, um, few high-performance programs right throughout the year, and they're also working on top of mm-hmm. being an athlete during that time. But as I said, the expectation from the fans is... And certainly the critics is that you need to perform like you've done this and been in this system since you were in your teenagers, since you were a teenager, and perform like the men who do this full-time all year round. So how does it change? You're right. And uh, and that's why, you know, I was saying that it's it's not the men's game, it's a different game. and um, And we're starting to see some players who 
have come from Auskick all the way through some women players playing football. And that's unusual because most people, um, women, uh, especially in the early years of AFLW, were coming from other sports, you know, from basketball and volleyball. And, uh, and there's still a few people who play dual or triple sports and still try to make all of that happen. So it's a huge demand. A lot of the women have families. Mm. And, mm. Uh, I didn't and even mention that. They're moms too. Yeah, they're moms as well. Um, and we've had uh, women you know, drive for hours with uh, a babe in arms to come to training and, uh, and breastfeed and go out and play. You have to love the game. And I think that's what comes through is the love of just playing that often we don't see in the men the same sort of just enthusiasm because you have to go through a lot to get there and you have to uh, have a lot of, yeah, yeah, you do have to sacrifice a lot and organize yourself pretty well to make all of that happen. But I think that the skills are developing rapidly and they're also finally getting access to elite training facilities and some elite coaching. And uh, I think the it's rapid improvement in, in the quality of the game. It's it, I find it really exciting to watch. So how soon would you like that to change for the girls? How soon can we oh. possibly, with your <laughs> business mind and your football mind, you know, because I, I find everyone says, this is what we're aiming towards, but if we just put it on the back burner, that's fine. If we say that we're aiming towards that, we can tick that box. But how can we actually accelerate that to make sure that these girls, with all the expectations on them, don't have to struggle for as long and we can reach, we can level that playing field for elite sport? We've had, you know, five years. So um, it, by the time we, another five years has gone past, I'd like to think that all of those things have been accomplished. I think that's fast-tracking it, frankly, because we also have to pay attention to the financial state of the AFL and came through COVID pretty well, but we aren't through it totally yet. And clubs that are doing it tough or are uncertain about their future, and the AFL is also uncertain about um, revenue from all kinds of things. But that should have sorted itself out by then. And I think that we can expect that more money will be put into the women's game because it is the fastest growing aspect of um, of Aussie rules football and um, that bringing along grassroots girls and, and women to play uh, as well as as uh, improving the lot of those women who are drafted and who do play in AFLW, then I think five years is plenty of time. Three years after you became president, your board from a group faced being overthrown, um, a really difficult and dark time for Richmond, you're on a path of where you knew what success could look like. And from that time when you almost were overthrown, 12 months later, you broke through and won the club's first flag since 1980. What did that time teach you the most about leadership? That time taught me the value of unity and having a principles-based approach to things. And and in looking back, and, and people often bring up that those months of what was it like, is um, the board was totally united behind where we were going and what we had done. And, and I think that was because we had taken our time to make decisions. Everybody had a say. We had uh, agreed as a group because a board is a big committee. There's no individual opinion there. There's one decision made and you get behind it. But because everybody had had an opportunity to have their say about issues that, su- that subsequently became um, sort of fodder for unrest <laughs> or disappointment in fans. But the idea that I could and the CEO could deal with the way we were going to handle this knowing and having the full support of the board, whatever that ended up being, was really, really important. It also sort of reduced itself to, you know, we were elected to do a job by the members. And again, if people who want this job are happy to go and be elected and they win and I don't, well, I'll just go back to watching football. But until the members indicate that they want someone else. 
I've just got to keep working. And those that's the way that we approached it. And it was a very settling sort of feeling when you reduce it to what is your job and don't make it that political. It was there were some there were a lot of things going on, and it's unfortunate that um, that was a distraction that took up time of management's time and my time, and and of course um, uh, it was a it had been five years into the um, into our strategic plan, and mm-hmm. every five years. Something always happened at mm. Richmond, they said. They, they always <laughs> fall over. And so it was a, really a determination to say we're we're different and we aren't just going to give in because uh, at one point there were like three different groups who decided that um, we had had uh, a disappointing season and a lot of it, of the, of the um, disgruntlement, revolved around the fact that the coach's contract had been extended before the season started. But the board had talked at length over months before we extended the coach's contract about, well, we could go backwards, you know, and and we'll just have to ride that out. We're going to extend the contract for two years, not one year, to give him the confidence that he can go ahead. But we had a feeling that it was going to be a year of a year of consolidation, that we were going to have to make more changes. We we'd been in finals for three years, but we'd never won one. And so the board and the CEO had been talking about, you know, we're good, but we haven't taken that next step. And and we had asked the CEO well before the season started to start identifying where the gaps were in who did what best and where were we. Some things we did really well, other things we had feeling about what might not be right, but we wanted some evidence. So we were going about that. And, and I guess, if anything, it was just the amount of time that was taken to address all of the um, external, you know, demands and and noises they call it. When we were trying really hard to make that change that would get us to a grand final, and did we think it would happen in 2017? No, not necessarily. But but it wasn't. Be, it, it didn't mean that it wouldn't happen. But we needed to make those changes. And of course, it, while all of this is going on there. You know, we're talking to players uh, from other clubs about coming in. We're talking to, you know, sponsors. They're saying, well, what's going on? We're not going to sign again if you're not going to be there. And uh, so there's a lot of other things that had to be taken into account. But in the end, I don't look back at that. And, you know, there were terrible moments of just like, oh, it feels like, um, you know, the, the floor has just dropped out from under me. But then you go, no, come on, we'll go back to this and we'll talk to one another and we're, we're fine. Let's just go. Because they always say it's not a measure of a good leader of how they lead during the good times and through success, but more a measure of a leader of how they lead during those bad times and those tough times. But to go from that to 12 months later to winning you know, that breakthrough premiership and then to have won two more, it just must have felt such a relief, but so good to have been able to do that. Oh, it was so emotional. Um, I just knew how hard everybody had worked. And I just felt such pride in the great people who worked at the club and how they had, you know, I'm sort of floating out there. They're the ones who come to work every day and have to make these things happen. And on grand final day, you know, it's the players that have to make it happen. And that's because good coaching has enabled them and equipped them to make it happen. And then you go to... um, the CEO and and the chief financial officer, and they had to make the money happen. And um, so, when they say it's a whole of club effort, it is. But uh, no, it was it was wonderful. But in a way, I thought, well, wasn't that what we set out to do? Okay, we'll have a celebration for a couple of days, and then we, next year we got next year coming. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, is that the too business like? But um, <laughs> no, it was over. It probably was Wednesday or so of the week following that I finally had some time that wasn't, you know, a media th- something or a, a f- or a sponsor or a fan event. And I sat at home and, and with the adrenaline gone, I was exhausted. Yeah, <laughs> and I watched the replay and really got pretty <laughs> choked up just <laughs> thinking about how, how much excitement and joy it brought to the club, but also to the fans who had been so loyal for so long. And, um, and uh, sharing in their happiness was pretty exhausting too. Mm-hmm. Fun, but exhausting. As part of this series with Puma, we're asking each guest if they could be fearless about the future for women in sport. And for you, I suppose it would be female athletes and 
female leaders. If you could be totally fearless and all shackles are off and you could create anything in the future for women in sport, what would that future look like? Well, I think it would be a future of equality and that's a future where young you know, girls don't have to doubt that they can fulfill their dreams, that there's resources and support for women who just want to be involved in sport as a player or as an administrator, that they can, that they can do that. And there's a long way to go to get there, but equality is something that we just have to keep striving for. What does equality in sport look like to you? It means that we don't distinguish in gender as to what comes your way, uh, whether that's um, playing for a professional team and getting um, time in the media, for example, that despite all the wonderful success so many of our women athletes have had in individual success and uh, team success, we don't often hear about them. I think that uh, equality would mean that um, young boys and girls look to women and men athletes with the same sense of awe and uh, respect that society values them in the same way and lauds their accomplishments. And as we were saying earlier, that we recognize in many ways that women have, have, have to do more to get to the same place. Um, so true equality would be that women may not have to do more to get to the same place and that their dreams can be achieved uh, with the same amount of hard work and the same amount of elite coaching and elite facilities that we've come to uh, grant to men. We talk about quotas in leadership um, positions. Wouldn't it be great if in sports media, and I'm talking mainstream media, there was, there was a quota for each sports bulletin of how much female <laughs> sport they should put on there because they're on TV, but not all the time they're reflected, even in sports bulletins, in papers. If you mm-hmm. could turn that back page and that back section of the paper and see 50% women, mm-hmm. I mean, the difference that would make would be enormous, wouldn't it? Oh, I think so. And, and because when you see things in print or on your screen, it has a, an impact that if you don't see it, you just don't think about it. It's the out of sight, out of mind. And so identifying that uh, women's accomplishments and women's voices on the screen are um, important to, to hear. And, and little by little, we've seen some change, but um, the pace in the media has been extremely slow. And uh, I'm not sure how to solve that one. I'm not in the media. But quotas is something that's been talked about, but too often it's left to women to promote the accomplishments of women athletes. And whereas there was a lot of reluctance, for example, to have women play AFL all this, you know, a century professionally, it shows that once there's the breakthrough, that things can happen. So again, if a licensing requirement for the various um, media outlets was that you have a certain percentage of, you know, 50% would be good, of um, women on screen or women on the radio or women writing stories about women athletes, it would just start to go to that equality dream. Now, my final question is, if you could go back, and we ask every guest this, if you could go back to 10-year-old Peggy, I'm thinking she's in Kalani at that stage, or has she moved on to the town with less than a 1,000? Yeah, I'm in Grundy by then. Grundy. (laughs) Grundy, Virginia. Yes, yes. West Virginia. (laughs) If you could go back to that 10-year-old Peggy, what would you tell her? you have one message for her. Just follow your curiosity about new places and new things and don't, don't stop. Please don't stop, Peggy. I know you have <laughs> was it one more year on the, as president. <laughs> yes, I finished in December of 2022, term limits, and um, I will have served 
nine years as president, so somebody else gets to have fun. Then. We don't want you to stop at all, but I'm sure that you've um, you've done your job in supporting other women, and there, by the sounds of it, there are so many more women who can climb those ranks as well and, and get to the heights that you have. You've been an absolute powerhouse for sport, powerhouse for women um, and women in sport. So thank you for your contribution and thank you for joining me on On Her Game. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for your kind words. On Her Game was presented by me, Sam Squires, producer, Lindsay Green, audio producer, Nikki Sitch, executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. This episode was created in partnership with Puma for the Fearless podcast series. To stay up to date with their incredible female sporting icons, follow at PumaAU on Instagram. And remember, stay fearless.